0: 101, which is highly appropriate.
1: Very appropriate. I just
0: realized that. Oh my gosh, you guys. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim.
1: And my name is Steve. And
0: we have a heck of a show for you today. Um, I just, as I mentioned, it's 101st episode, which is so just timely and perfect and wonderful. The fates align
1: because this week we had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Mr. Jim Pee Wee Martin, who just turned 100 years old on April 29th of this year. And Jim just so happened that he served in World War II in the 101st Airborne Division. So yeah. it is very significant. It
0: is really, that's really neat. Um, we should also mention that. His birthday party was one for the ages. It's not everybody that has the Golden Knights, the Army Golden Knights parachute into their birthday party, but boy, Pee Wee Martin had him, didn't
1: he? That was quite the celebration. They had had restored C-47s that reenactors jumped out of, and it was just... Skydivers, people in period costumes. We
0: had um, we, a barnstormer was taking people up on a. I think it was a biplane. Yeah, uh, just really, really neat um event
1: and well deserved for what we consider a national treasure, Mister. Abs- yeah, we are absolutely. so lucky
0: to have him. He lives right in our neighborhood,
1: just down the road,
0: and so we're very, very fortunate.
1: Yeah. Now, Mister. Martin and. That's what, that's what I'm going to call him as Mr. <laughs> Martin, but he said, call me Jim. He, he was just a normal kid that grew up during the Depression in North Dayton, Ohio. He enlisted in the Army, he volunteered, and then even after that, to go to airborne training, you had to volunteer to go to airborne training, which he did. Uh, Mr. Martin served in Gulf Company, the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division, now, many of you have probably watched or heard of the movie The Band of Brothers. Those guys were in Echo Company, 506th PIR, Parachute Infantry Regiment. So, you know, this story is not about the Band of Brothers. It's about Mr. Jim Pee-wee Martin. And, but just so you can kind of relate, a lot of the same ground, the same terrain, they shared the same area. So just to put it in a, in a frame of reference right there. Now, Mr. Martin jumped into Normandy, Operation Market Garden. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He ended up in Berchtesgaden, Germany, in Bavaria at the end of the war. And this story is just such an amazing story, and it's you're going to get the perspective of, of a gentleman that's 100 years old mm-hmm. that has seen and lived a lot and just the perspective of a guy from the greatest generation.
0: And he remembers all of it. He is sharp as a tack. He's like that Jimmy Buffett song, you know, losing his hearing. Uh, But he remembers everything and is, was just a joy to talk to. Uh, Now we are not going to have our typical outro. um, So I would like to uh, thank thank some people um, before we get started with the interview First of all, thank you thank you very much to the Sugar Creek Community Center, which uh, Jim was adamant that we mentioned that that is in Greene County, Ohio. So thank you for allowing us to use the facility for our interview. Thank you very much for uh, putting us um, in touch with the family, Rick Pirellis. Thank you to Jody Putterball, who is Jim's granddaughter, who uh, kind of helped facilitate the interview and was there with us during the interview. Uh, and thank you also to Karen Waldrop, who is a singer-songwriter who wrote and performed a song called Normandy on Jim's behalf, kind of about him, which is what we are going to use to close the show. So you can find her on several of the different streaming platforms. Again, the song is Normandy by Karen Waldrop, and you will hear it at the end of the show. So,
1: And, of course, thank you to...
0: Of course, thank you to... Mr. Pee Wee Martin for giving us his time and attention and his stories. It was a real honor and a pleasure to be able to speak with him.
1: And with that, let's go ahead and go to the interview. So here we are in Sugar Creek Township,
2: Ohio, with. Now, now be sure and say Greene County, because yes, there is sir, a Sugar Creek.
1: Sugar Creek Township in Greene County, Ohio, with Mr. Jim Pee Wee Martin who served in the Army during World War II, but he has a very fascinating story that we want to talk to him about that. So, Mr. Martin, what unit did you serve no, with? No, Jim. Jim, all right. What unit were you with in World War
2: II? Uh, I went in and... No,
3: what unit in, were you... In? in
2: June of 1942. Okay. I was on inactive duty for three weeks, and then I went to Toccoa, Georgia for training. And there were four different units trained after us. We were the first, and we were the experimental group that tried all kinds of things and made plans and jumped us in places to in trees and in water and in dangerous places and then they'd have a critique about that to decide if the asset that they wanted to capture was worth the number of people that would be killed or wounded in that operation. Wow. And we decided there were more people killed than it was worth that either changed the mission or drop that mission. And A lot of things they had us did, probably half of them were dropped, and the the units that came behind us, they didn't go through that because we did all that beforehand.
1: Wow. Where were you born and raised?
2: I was born in Portage, Pennsylvania. and My family was there for six months, and, and we came back to Indiana, where my mother had been born and raised. And my dad had been raised in Maine. And he went to, um, went to college at MIT. He got a full scholarship in textile chemistry. Wow. His second year, he changed over to uh, electrical engineering. And the guy that he was his professor is the one that made all this electricity possible. And then they, there was several of them did some kind of a, a, a trick one night, and they had to stay away a, a semester. Something you wouldn't even think of today, but things were taken pretty seriously about that then. So he got a job uh, designing electrical stuff for. Airplanes and and uh, tanks and trucks and he never went back. Were and you then, always
0: uh, interested in the airplanes and tanks and things when you were a boy? Oh, were yeah. you interested? World
2: War One, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, and my mother went to college too.
0: Wow, that's unusual yes, for that both time. both of them did.
2: Yes, that's that great. That college taught women two things: either a teacher or. Um, business and she took business and she got out. She went to uh, Indianapolis and she was in charge of 80 operators at Indian Bell Telephone Company. And my dad went to work for Willard uh, Battery and he got blood poisoning and he had to quit that and then he, uh, he went into inventing things and he invented a sound on film uh, projector it used to be you'd see the picture up there and mm-hmm. underneath it would be somebody telling it what it was well yeah he uh-huh. had a he, he had a different he had a a thing right on the side of the film and a photoelectric cell picked it up and that went into a speaker and so you're looking at it, and you're hearing it at the same time.
0: That's amazing.
3: Yeah,
2: he did that.
3: And so I'm going to. Say but he something.
2: wasn't a businessman.
3: He grew up in North Dayton, Ohio. Okay. And he went to Kaiser High School. North okay. Dayton. And now I
0: think Kaiser is the
3: middle school. It's one a, of the middle well, schools. Well, it's an elementary. It's a K okay. building. That gotcha. was the neighborhood he grew ended
0: up growing up. Okay.
2: Ohio. Yeah, I grew up in North Dayton. North Dayton was a.
0: Uh, A lot of immigrants.
2: It it was just like Europe. Now, even in the 30s, people were still coming in, Mm -hmm. and they went to North Dayton. You had every European country represented by people come in. Now, these were not refugees. There were two big companies. There was NCR, National Cash Register. And there was, uh, they had a guy named Moskowitz who was going to Europe, and he was to persuade people to come over. Mm -hmm. And if you went to NCR, you had a tag on your arm here that said NCR. And when you got to Dayton, the conductor said, Dayton, then you got off and there was somebody to meet you. Wow. And they set up a, a thing in North Dayton. And why can't I remember the other company? But anyway, it was the biggest company around. They made railroad cars. Mm -hmm. Uh uh, And they also made special railroad cars for uh, people that had a lot of money.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. They'd have their own railroad car made. And it would be in, in in a yard, and they wanted to go someplace. They'd call the dispatcher. They'd send an engine, pick it up, and take them wherever they wanted to go. Wow. And they had those around the country. And so then, then when they got where they're going, they had transportation to take them in all the towns and yeah. vacations and all that wow. sort of thing. Oh, Barnett and Smith Car Works. Yes, That was yes. the other one. Yep. You heard of them?
0: Yes. They're, I think they have some of their old, um, some of those old cars at Carillon Park on display now. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yep. And then um, Smith got out of it for some reason or other, and Barney kept it. And then they had this uh, little hospital, and we didn't call it. Uh, we just called it Barney. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was right there on the Mad River. And all of us kids were run up and down played play the river all day long. And we'd get stung by wasps and things and and uh, some of the other things. And we'd just go to Barney right across the street there. And we'd go in there and they'd uh, wash it off and put some alcohol in it and then put pneumatizing on it and didn't charge us. Yeah. And then we'd go back over there again. <laughs> that's how we did things. Yeah. So... What was it like growing up during the depression as a young
1: man, a young boy? What was it like just your life during the well, depression?
2: Everybody was poor. Uh-huh. Now there were some people that had money, and we're like people are today. We didn't resent those that had money because they provided jobs for the few people who could work. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't resent it at all and they were up not uppity they they worked with us and played with us everything just like we were and uh it was a wonderful growing up and the only rule we really had was be home at supper time yeah i got in trouble a lot because i didn't always get home in time (laughs) Did that get you in trouble in the Army later on? And that's another thing. <laughs> After World War One, that didn't end. It still didn't. Uh-huh. That was an armistice.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: anybody can start that up today if they want. Yeah. And so all the guys that went home were told to take their uh, guns home with them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And they hunted, not for sport, but to eat. Right. They shot squirrels and rabbits and groundhogs
0: uh,
2: and that's what they cook
0: yeah it's there you may as well eat it
2: that's right now do you remember where you were
1: when Pearl Harbor happened I remember my yes. dad telling me stories about I, I was happened.
2: working I was in the defense industry and uh, Johnson engineering and Pearl Harbor came, and that didn't bother me a bit. A lot of people rushed to sign up, but I didn't. And uh, we were making gun trails for 90 millimeter guns. And I said, "The heck with that. I'm not going to, and there's how wrong it can be. I thought, Pearl Harbor, Japanese, what the hell can they do? And I didn't realize how. They had been built up. Uh And they had radar, dozens of them. Our armed forces had one radar at that time. Nobody wanted Mm it. And I'll tell you what happened on that. They put some guys out. One guy had been in the Army. He just was not in over a year. Another guy had just been in. And they were put on, there's a place where nobody would ever expect an attack to come from, up in the northwest part. That's where they put those two guys just to get them out of the way. Well, on one side of the river was our forces. And the other side of the river was the enemy. And 106... Regiment was over there and 28th had been decimated and they were put in there to recover and all of a sudden all these planes came in and they were sending messages back they heard lots of vehicle traffic, tanks and trucks and things and intelligence people back here in the states sent a message home oh you guys are just uh, you're just jumpy. You haven't been in combat. And besides that, there's some uh, planes coming from the United States. That's why you're coming. Well, these guys should have told them what direction the planes were coming from, but they didn't know that. And the other guys over there, they should have all been, intelligent people should have been court-martialed because... They were assuming something, and it, you don't assume things mm-hmm. in combat. You check them out, and that's another thing. The 101st and the 82nd Airborne never got surprised, and the reason is, we didn't. We made patrols in the enemy territory every single night. We hated them. It was not kill people it was to see what was there
4: mm-hmm. so we
2: weren't surprised I'll tell you that the Japanese could have taken this country if they'd done one thing they didn't do there was a tank farm 300 and some acres of tanks full of fuel uh-huh. and they didn't mm-hmm. take them out yeah. if they'd taken them out we couldn't have done a darn thing now what
1: finally made you to decide to enlist? Why did you decide to go to the army? Well, I'll
2: tell you what, as time went on uh, we didn't have television but we had radio and we'd go down to the movie theater if you had a dime and see what was going on <clears throat> and we listened to Father Coughlin telling people to burn the places where they enlist and and smear blood all over the people. And I suddenly realized that uh, France and and Britain if they didn't get some help we're all going to be on it. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people there's a myth about that and you'll read it a lot that we went over to save them. That is not true. We went over to join them.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Each of us giving what we could. They didn't have anything to do like we did in manufacturing. And during World War II, 50% of all the material for war, including what we gave to Russia, came from the United States. Mm-hmm. Nobody else in the world could have done that. Yeah. And then people said, you know, at the time World War I, the armistice came the Army's all shut down. There was only 400 people in service at that time. Now, in two years' time, we went from 400 people to 16 million people. And the thing was, who's, you're taking that many people out, who's gonna run the factories? Yep. Yep. And they said, women. And everybody laughed, And you know what? Those women not only ran the factories, they raised the kids, they paid the mortgages, they made the loans. And that created a lot of trouble when the war ended because they had autonomy. Yeah. The first time they were independent. And I'll tell you how it was. I wanted to buy a small bulldozer and I went into the bank and wanted to get $2,200. And a banker said, who are you? And I said, I'm Jim Martin. And he said, "Well, uh, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, my wife worked in defense industry all the time," and so we'll have to call her and see if if that's true. And it yeah, did. And she she went to uh, she was a school teacher at that time, and she went to school in Omaha that. Taught electronics and all that, and there was then they'd send these girls out to different places around the country, and, and seven of them for her group were sent to Dayton, and of course she had, she was a pilot too. Oh wow! First one in her uh, county that soloed, and uh, so she was thrilled to be here, and and I met a, I just got out of the service about a week, and I met her and in uh, end of September and in March we got married and we were married 72 years. Wow,
0: that's incredible. So. Did you have children?
2: I had five.
0: Tell them why,
3: um, how you ended up in Airborne. Tell them what you really wanted to do when you... And what? Tell them how you enlisted in the Navy first and then you ended up going to the Well... Airport. Tell them that story.
2: Uh, growing up, I was really interested in the Navy. I'd read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's a good book. You know about that. Mm-hmm. I heard about Monson, the made a rescue thing to get people out of injured. Well, so uh, when I decided to go, I went down there and, and uh, went in and signed up for the Navy. And then I said, Now, how soon am I going? I said, Well, the, the sub year is going to be on this under construction. It'll be about six months. And I thought, well, I, I had a big argument with my boss when I quit because he had to have a deserve, uh, defense thing for me, and I didn't have to go. And I said, well, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm just an apprentice, and it doesn't really matter. And he got really mad, and he said, I want to tell you something. These contracts are 10 plus, profit plus 10%. And every hour you're here, I get $5 clear besides my profit. And I don't give a damn if you're sleeping there in a rag bin. And that's the way the industrialists felt. Yeah. In fact, all of them did. And the, finally, the government said it to these industrialists uh, you're either going to start making more material or we're going to send you to jail.
1: Did. Did the company you work for, did they turn over and start making military equipment? You said you worked for DOD, so they already were, I guess.
2: Yeah. After they found out they had to, they did. <laughs> yeah. 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 We made gun trails from 90 millimeter guns. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So Oh, I was just gonna say this is I think very interesting for this. Um, he actually went to join the Navy because he wanted to be in a submarine. Mm-hmm. But after he had enlisted, they told him the submarine wouldn't be ready for six months or whatever, and uh, he had already quit his job. So he's like, I can't go back because my boss is already mad at me. Right. So he literally walked out of the Navy door in the hall, and across the hall, he saw Army. (sighs) So he walked straight into the Army, and they took him immediately, and that's when he went into Airborne. Um, so it's just ironic <laughs> from then he wanted to be in a submarine, but he ended up jumping from a plane. She
2: <laughs> there was no airborne in the American army rare, yeah. at that time. Wow, yeah The Germans had it, yeah, and they had a battle at Creek and and they won the battle, but it just about tore the Germans up, and they decided not to use paratroopers anymore. Uh, Hitler didn't want them. Do you ever think? But about Omar that? Bradley, General, General Bradley, uh, had watched that, what they did, and he thought we should have it. And he went to Roosevelt, and Roosevelt was Navy. But surprisingly, Roosevelt, yeah, he said, You can have it, but here's the way it's going to be. You, you have the you ball- can You can take any personnel as you want you can have any material that you want or anything that you want done and nobody can overrule you except me. Hmm. And they sent us down to Tacoma, Georgia for training. Across the street from the camp was the casket factory. Hmm. That disappeared. Not just the caskets, but the, the building was torn down. The road that went from the station up to campus was Route 13. They changed the the route number.
0: Wow. Uh, Do you ever think about if you had stuck with the original plan and been in the Navy and waited to get on a submarine, how things would have been different? Do you ever... are you glad that you joined the Army instead of the Navy?
2: Oh, yes, I'm glad I joined the Army for several reasons. It takes a special kind of person to be in a submarine. Mm-hmm. Because you're isolated. Yeah. And then i You'll laugh at this, but it's true. I hadn't realized at the time there were no women in submarines. <laughs> and in the Army, every, every New place you went, there's more women.
0: There you go. <laughs> there's and, the answer.
2: <laughs> and yes. Can you imagine? Here's all these young guys living in these communities and they didn't dally around because everybody was watching everybody's kids. Yeah. And suddenly they're out from under any social restrictions whatsoever. Because the Army didn't care what they did when they're off duty. And that's the way it was
1: yeah now you had to volunteer to be in the airborne you had to volunteer
2: oh yes yeah. now you could be drafted into service but you had to volunteer to go to paratrooper
1: yeah so you your training was different when you went to basic training you went straight to airborne basic training yes and then you had to go to airborne well, school. yes
2: see when they when they first started that, They'd send down to Fort Benning and give them four weeks of training, and they were airborne paratroopers. And they would put six of them over this regiment, and five over here, and three over here. And then uh, they put a guy named Colonel Sink in West Point in 1927, put him in charge. And he said, we're not going to do that. You're not going down there first. I have an airborne basic plan for you. Now, it's 2,150 people in an airborne regiment. Mm -hmm. 6,500 people signed up. didn't want anybody from the old army. They didn't want that contamination. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: From the middle of July of 42, you know, 43... Yeah, 42 until for, uh December of uh 42. We went from 6500 to 1650 people. Wow. That airborne basic had that's where we got rid of people who wouldn't fit.
0: Yeah.
2: You had to have people who were not emotional because armies are made to kill people and win wars. Mm-hmm. We don't do that now. We negotiate with terrorists, believe it or not. Well, anyway, that's where we got. And then, of course, we had to bring more people in who who, uh, volunteered and train them like we had been. But we are, and then ones that came after us in the different regiments, they didn't go through all of that. We went through all the danger stuff and all the experimental stuff, yeah. and that's why I came up with the idea of uh, uh, Taquoa original, because we were the original people, and the others didn't have to go through that, and, and that does make a difference. Oh, sure. And when you go any place, and it "Where were you train, It said, "Taquoa." We're airborne original, and boy, that perks them up because they know what we went through. Yeah. But anyway, we never had anybody quit at all. We never had anybody renege. We didn't have anybody with mental problems. We got rid of all those people ahead of time.
1: Do you remember your first jump out of the airplane? The first real jump from the airplane?
2: Well, no hell none of us had ever ridden an airplane. (laughs) In fact, most of us in the Midwest had never seen an airplane. Uh Uh-huh. So what was that first jump like? That was scary because we didn't hadn't done it. And of course the fear was And now, some people got up there and went through the training, and they stood in the door and then they couldn't jump. Yeah. And if that happened to you, you got six months of your pay taken away, and you got sent to a, a 27th Infantry Division in Africa. Well, you can imagine how that was. And then you got your pay taken away. It serves six months in the guardhouse. And then you went to the 22nd. And one day, the company clerk said, the colonel in at 22nd, uh, 7th, called and said, why are you getting rid of these people? And Colonel Six said, they don't measure up. And he said, just send all you got to the best best people we ever had. Well, they were. They were trained better than any ground people. Yeah. But then when, uh, and you had to be people that you saw killed next to you, it didn't affect you. And people even asked me today, how did you feel about those people that you trained with and made friends with and now they're dead? And I said, I never thought about it at all. He said, what do you mean? I said, I didn't feel sorry for them. We knew that was going to happen, mm-hmm. and remember, they're dead. We don't know where they went. We're raised to think there's a spirit that goes away. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. But my feeling is this: I'm not an atheist, and I'm not an agnostic. I'm, I'm saying I'm a deist. Not even what it is, and I don't care. But they are gone. The ones I feel sorry for are their family. Yeah. There is never end for them. Yeah. And also, remember the unknown soldier stuff? Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. In the Battle of the Bulge, there was a convoy of tanks about a mile long. It was frozen three and a half feet deep. But those were the big Abrams tanks, 80-ton tanks. And after a while, they broke through that. And there was nothing but mush, three feet deep. Mm There had been a battle there just shortly before. And there was about a mile of road that was covered with German and American bodies. What do you think happened to them? They went right over them. You don't stop for that. There's a bunch of people. Nobody will ever know what happened. Then the engineers came along and filled it up with gravel. it was forgotten about. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that go on. So, would I do it again? Yeah. Yes, I would. So how long after you finished your airborne
1: training did you ship overseas to England? How long did that take?
2: Uh, we trained for about a year in England. Mm-hmm. And then we shipped overseas and we were put in three different villages and we went to a village called Ramsbury mm-hmm. and uh, it was a town of 1,500 people and there was eight or nine pubs in that town and there was 750 of us one uh, battalion third battalion I was in was sent there so you got 1,500 and you got 750 with us and up on the hill was a Uh, an airfield, and they had about 2,000 people up there. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Now you can imagine all those people in that one little town. It was wild. I bet. I'm telling you it was wild. Wow. And then we had the language barrier and they gave us a little uh, manual about things to say and not say and one (laughs) thing they made very clear do not brag about you have what you have. These people have nothing. Yeah. And some guy said, "Well, I don't know about that." And he said, "I've seen these little cars they got. Yes, those are Singer Sevens. What do you mean by that? They're seven horsepower." Hmm. He said, "Well, hell's fire. I got eighty-five horsepower." I said, don't you ever say that. Yeah. And these people have absolutely nothing. And then I'll tell you what happened to me. Those British soldiers were only getting about two pounds a month. That was about $10 a month. And we were airborne. At that time, we were getting $128 a month. So I wrote to the War Department and suggested that since we were in another country, we should be paid the same rate their people were in each country we went to. And I got a nice letter back. It said, you don't understand. And it was really nice. It said, we can't give them money legally. Yeah. Nobody will put up for it, it's not legal anyway. And they're proud people, and they'd feel very badly if we did that. We give you guys your pay. We know you're going to go to Bear Joint and spend it. It goes into the economy, and then they feel all right about it. Mm -hmm. But but they're paying your service.
0: So that being said, how many fish and chips and beers did you have while you were over in England?
2: How many what?
0: That being said, how much fish and chips and how many beers did you have when you were over I in I didn't
2: England? drink. I didn't drink or smoke.
0: Well, that's good.
2: Now, don't think I'm a goody two-shoes, but sex was also available. <laughs> I never had any trouble with it, and I'll tell you something, they don't do it right today. You know why? Why's that? We got lectured at least once a month by a battalion surgeon. And a company commander, and he said, any woman comes in here and puts her hand on your shoulder, you're going to hang. <laughs> There'll be no court-martial, nothing on your record. Telegram will go home. You died in the honor of your country. They could stop this over here right now. They're not, they're not at all serious about it mm-hmm. and they said well all these pilots and everything they're all, all the tests alter it. what do you think i'm paratrooper head <laughs> a lot more than they've got <laughs> and we don't put up with that there you go we still don't in the airborne no none of the airborne have ever had a sexual assault case against them huh. never and plenty of it went on and some of the older women there in the town, 35 and 40, they got upset about it. And I'd tell them, look, in every war from the time of Napoleon on, this went on. Mm-hmm. And I said, you've got to remember another thing. You said, you're upset because our guys are doing this. Every guy over there, there's an English girl underneath him. And when this war's over, you're going to go right back to the way you used to be. All wars are that way. But this is the first war in history where women were not subject to the winner. Women always actually belonged to the winner and they were treated that way. Mm -hmm. In World War II, 90 countries signed on to a Memorandum of Understanding. It's not a law, it's an understanding. For the first time in history, Women are free when the war is over. They're free and independent. They don't belong to anybody but themselves. That's and then great. I was a little creative when the war was over because here's all these men coming back. They've been gone three and four years. I didn't have a job for two years because the way they did things had changed. Yeah. And they said, You guys are just like apprentices now you're going to have to start over and we were they kept the people who were there and the company I worked for the personnel guy said Jim these guys work 12 hours a day and they're tired and I said yes Harvey and they made money didn't they he said well yes I said now where in the hell do you think we've been what we did and so uh, There was a law that said they had to take everybody back, but most companies ignored it and they got away with it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I got a bunch of guys, not airborne, everybody that worked at that company. And I said, we're gonna make this, put this out in the public, what you're treating these guys. And so they took us on and we worked for a year. And then there was some renegotiations going on. On contracts because a lot of these companies had cheated and they're going to negotiate and so they're legal people and the company said look if you don't sell this company if you sell the company you're still responsible what you do is you you auction off all the machinery you auction off the building and then you're out of it and that's what he did Mm -hmm. So then, after a couple of years, we got to going back to work. and in the meantime, these women and the men coming back, the women didn't want to give up that position and that created in the first year, and you can check the record the first year after the war, fifty percent of the marriages failed. yeah, a lot of them were hurried marriages. The man came back, and they didn't really know him when he went, and he came back, and he was a different guy altogether. But after that first year, all of, we, me and some of our other people in our area, they weren't airborne, I was only an airborne, but different ones, we were building our own houses, and we kept track of each other, the, the military people. Uh, we got together, 50 of us, and we stayed together um, until the, the last ones died. There's probably maybe 10 of my original people still left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, but they're younger than me. They came in a little later. Yeah.
1: Now, getting ready for Normandy, for the invasion of Normandy, what was that like, the training? How much preparation did you have to do?
2: Well, we'd already gone through that that attrition and the people we had. Uh, and now, there was times when we, we hated Colonel Sink. That was your regiment commander? He, he was our commander. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who came up with the airborne basic thing. And he had us out on the uh, hillside there. They said, I understand you guys are not happy. And everybody said, yeah. And you don't like the food? <laughs> no. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to get a hell of a lot worse before it gets any better. <laughs> he walked away. He was really never raised his voice. Yeah. Just low key. And then a few months later, he called us out there again and he said, One of you people, he always called it people, one of you people wrote to your mother <laughs> and said, How terrible are you being treated? I had a congressman come to me about this. And the next time a congressman comes to me, the guy that sent that letter is going to wish he was never born. Oh. And that was the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And then, of course, we got the combat. We found out why. We really knew why, but we thought it was too hard. It wasn't too hard. Um... Because then if you had an operation, you knew every man in that unit was going to be there when you needed him. Mm -hmm. In a lot of units, that didn't happen. And also Colonel Sink, the only regimental commander in World War II that turned down two opportunities to quit our unit and become a general and leave our unit. He's the only one that did that throughout the whole war. Wow. i yeah. not saying somewhere oh, sixteen God. Yes, sir. So
1: what was the flight like mm-hmm. as you left Normandy or as you left England? What was the flight like to Normandy before you jumped in?
2: Well, <laughs> we were in circles in of nine planes each. Mm-hmm. And only one, the first plane in each circle had a navigator. Well, when we went over, now they had devil's sermon time over there. We have one hour. So at 11 o'clock at night, you can still see pretty good. We didn't anticipate. As we hit the the coast, there was a big cloud bank rolled in. Mm. And here we are close together. And the first thing you think of, scatter because you're going to hit each other. And then we lost our navigator. Now, on the ground, the people went in ahead of us were pathfinders. And they had them all over the area. And each one of them had a transmitter called a Eureka. It was code, not voice. Mm -hmm. And the plane that was supposed to drop on that one had a, a Rebecca, a receiver. But when this thing hit and was scattered... And so what happened, the plane was in on any place that so lights. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got scattered. And, the, of course, they blamed the Air Force for that. In fact, they had a lawsuit over that. And I told the guys, I said, you can't blame them, those pilots. When they lost the navigators, they were lost, too. So they just dropped you wherever they could. And of course, they had lawsuits over it. And um, the Air Force uh, apologized for dropping us wrong. And then uh, they got an apology. They wanted it in writing, and they wouldn't give it to them. And then the the leader of the group there, um, they they, they just bandited it. But even today, some people are blaming the Air Force, and it wasn't. And then people say to me, why do you talk about that? You guys are, uh, you hate the Air Force. And I said, no, we do not hate the Air Force. I said, nobody can win a war today unless they have air cover. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to tell you, in Normandy, you didn't see more than two or three enemy planes.
1: You jumped very low, didn't you? How high were you when you jumped out that night?
2: Well, we jumped at 400 feet.
1: Wow. That's not a lot of room. <laughs> right.
2: Well, you want to get down as quickly as possible. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and another thing, uh, we're supposed to, uh, when you're jumping people, you're supposed to slow down to 90 miles an hour and make a slight left turn. Now, a slight left turn is so you don't get caught on the plane, on the oh, tail. Oh,
0: my goodness.
2: But we did have a guy get on a plane on a practice jump
0: Ooh. and of
2: course nothing you could do about it He yeah. dragged him to death. Oof. And they and they called him and told him on the radio, you know what we have to do, he said, go ahead, I know what you have to do. He didn't complain about it. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference too in mm-hmm. what they are today. And there's only seven percent of any population that's suitable for combat. Mm-hmm. That goes back where they're using spears and bows and arrows. In the tribes, always there were two people went out and did the hunting and and brought it back, and the tribes all benefited, and the tribes then, they raised the vegetables and stuff like that, but these others are the ones that did the fighting and supplied basic living. And it's the same way today. One thing is now in World War II, 7% of all the population was in the army. Now it's less than
1: 1%. What was your mission when you landed in France?
2: We had uh, two bridges. One a pedestrian bridge and one a, uh, a vehicle bridge that the Germans were using, going to use to funnel reinforcements down to repel our beach forces coming in and we're supposed to take those to keep the Germans from using them and then we could use them. Well, we lost all of our uh, equipment, uh, communications equipment, Uh, plane probably blew up and division didn't hear from us for three days and they thought we'd been annihilated so they ordered the fighter bombers to come in and blow those bridges out. Well, they did. Uh, and we were right there, but only one guy got killed. But when they heard these bombers coming, one of the guys got up on there with uh, Cerise panels to wave to say that we're friendly, and the other one up there, uh, Sergeant uh, Ames was up there letting out orange smoke But those fighter bombers didn't pay any attention to that. They came down there with machine guns blazing and dropped a couple of bombs and straddled those two guys. As I said, only one of them got killed, but they they damaged the bridges, and then the people took the rest of the bridges out. And those people were were agriculture, and they didn't, uh, uh, they shipped their agricultures by water. And the Germans had just built those bridges a few months before, so that that made them in a hell of a shape. Uh-huh. And so they were glad to get rid of them. Now, those people in agriculture there, they raised two things, apples and cows. Mm. The apples were not to eat. They were to make calvados, And the, the milk was to make cheese. And that was their two things they did with those. And while we're fighting, they went right ahead with their business in agriculture. If the bombs were coming down, yeah, they'd take cover. But as soon as the bombs quit, they'd start wow. their agriculture.
1: After Normandy, you jumped into Holland, didn't you, with Market Garden? Yeah. Yeah,
2: and you were wounded there? Yes, I was wounded there. Uh huh. I spent a little time in the hospital sometime. I was wounded in Bastogne also. Nothing that... Well, it's killing me. And now, I, I lost a kidney from concussion. Uh-huh. And I lost... I had heart damage from concussion. And I always thought it was from the noises in the shop after I came back. And they said, no, I'm, VA said, no, these are one-time concussions from shell fire, and there is a difference between the shell fire today and what the people are going through now. If you had an 88 shell or an artillery shell, you might have 15 or 20 pounds of explosive. That's a low. Velocity shock wave, uh-huh. but now they don't shoot people they they run over a buried thing with fifteen hundred pounds of explosive, mm-hmm. and that's a high velocity wave, mm-hmm. and that's why i couldn't understand when I read twenty five percent of the people over there now have mental problems, what that does it it changes their brain, mm-hmm. and there was the army had nothing to to treat that so they just would discharge them and the family had to put up. Yeah. Well, then I got a friend. We had a party at my house one day and him and his wife were both doctors and then they they came up with something that could treat these people. And so I got a hold of some people at, at the Army Medicals and said, you get those people up at the, at the top to go talk to this guy and I have got his contact information and I don't think they ever, ever called him. Mm, yeah. They just put him out. Yeah. There, that's a shame. Is
1: there anything oh, yeah. that sticks out in your mind you remember about Bastogne? I sure
2: do. Yeah, It was cold, you know. It went Cold? It, yeah, it went down to pretty darn cold. But the Battle of Bulge was the worst because that went down and was uh, hardly anybody uh, any time that it was above zero uh-huh. and then the thing you don't think about is How do you think if you're lucky to have a pair of socks when do you think it's safe enough to take your boot off and do it put a sock on? When do you think it's safe to take a leak or take a crap? And that's another thing your penis is shrunk up to, you almost have to tie a string on to get it out and no matter what happens, you put it back in, and it dribbles down your leg. And for a minute or so, that feels pretty good. <laughs> and after that, it feels terrible. And of course, you smell like a belly goat after a while, but <laughs> it doesn't matter, because the cold, you can't smell much anyway, and everybody smelled the same, so it yeah. did not matter. And then was a, a patrol came through, and one of the guys went out to take a crap, and this patrol found him, and they, they shot him in the rear. Oh and he, And they left, oh, they no. didn't kill him, and he came running out all his blood all over him boys, and the medics got him and cleaned him up and said, "Oh hell, it's just a flesh wound, and everybody laughed about it
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well that's that's life, and then you know water we found this lake and and we could beat the ice down and, and take a, a, a one of those jerry cans off a tank or a truck that had diesel or gasoline and go fill it up and bring it back and fill your canteen. And how do you think that tastes like? <laughs> And then you had to drink it right away. It would freeze. Mm. And so uh, those things people don't think about a lot. Yeah. And, you, and you then you're laying that. out in the ground in a slit trench and it's down below zero. And then if you dig a foxhole, you sit in it, and up in uh, uh, Market Garden there in Holland, that was below sea level. Mm. And you sit there, and about an hour, you got six inches of water Mm. you're sitting in. Now, this may sound funny, but after a while, that doesn't feel very cold. Mm -hmm. Then you go out on patrol or go out on a mission, you come back, and that's all cold as the devil, and you gotta heat it up again. Those are the kind of living conditions people don't think about. So after the Battle of the Bulge, your
1: unit, you went on and you ended up in Garden, and then the war was over. And what did you do after the war for the next, well, for
2: 1945? Well, they had a, a point system. You know, when you were drafted or whether you enlisted, you were signed up for um, for the end of the war plus six months. You didn't all go home right away. And they came up with this point system. You got points for how long you were in the service, uh, how long you trained in the States, how long you trained overseas, how many uh, injuries you had, how many awards you had. And I always thought I had 85. That was a point where you could go home early. And I was recently looking at my discharge, and I had 89. But that's... I got to go home early on that. Yeah. Boy, didn't think that was a howl. Those people forgot about that six months. Yeah. And then, if you had to go to the guardhouse, say so you went in the guardhouse for two months. A mission came along, you went out and fought, and you went back in the guardhouse and didn't get anything for that. Yeah. But you had to stay overseas and make up that good that old bad time. And if you got a venereal disease, and you didn't have a chit for... They had these places where you could go and get uh, that stuff shot up your penis, and they'd give you a paper to show. Now, if you showed up later with that, even though they knew you'd been fooling around again, they didn't—they didn't do anything to you. But if you didn't have that paper, that was the six months, and they're paying mm-hmm. out. So. When, when
1: you came back to the United States, how did you make your living after the war? And what, what did you do after the war till today?
2: Same place where I left. You went back. Yeah, you know, That's when I told you they didn't want to take us back. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody did. Yeah, I went back, same thing. Two and die shop. And we made special machinery for all these big companies. We're the people, uh, even today, it changed, but the people in this kind of trade, you'd be paying $6,000 for an automobile. Yeah. And so so it's very important.
1: Did you retire from there?
2: I retired when I was 65. I was working on a machine that had broken down, and somebody came from the office and said, hey, Martin, you got a phone call. So I went up there, and it was my wife, she said, you know what, I got a letter from Social Security, and they sent an $18 check. You're signed up for Social Security. I went back, and I started picking my tools up, and the guy said, well, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm quitting. Boy, you can't do that. I said, hell, I can't. <laughs> and then later, I went back there, and there was there was a college professor and a couple other guys, and a woman that ran the company. She came in, and she was smart, too. I didn't mind working for her because she was smarter than those guys were. And the one was a professor, and I said, I need a, a gallon of cutting oil. And that's what you use when you're cutting threads on pipe. I said, Oh, yeah, we can have that. And I said, Hell's fire. You're gonna get tired of being retired. You you're gonna come in here and sit around if we don't pay you. And I said, don't you bet on it.
1: <laughs> well, Jim, we've been doing this for about an hour now, and we appreciate your time and just respect everything that you've done. And we're we're you very honored anymore, to talk you to you. You want any more? You call
2: her and she'll contact me. Okay, so thank. So we're the most we're the most famous. Regiment in the war in World War Two.
0: That's something to be proud of.
2: Yep, it is. Where
0: where did the name Pee Wee come from?
2: Because I was small. Ah. I only weighed 106 when I went there. Holy Army. cow! Yeah. And then I got up to 135. And then when we were sent up to a place where we we're getting ready to go out, the quartermaster, we're taken truckloads of our rations. They'd get three or four trucks and a couple of officers and several men and go down a little pass into Italy and sell them on the black market. Mm. And I went down pretty bad, and some of the guys said, Martin, you got to do something about that. Take your shirt over and go see the medics. You look as bad as those guys in Landsberg. And that's the place we where Hitler was in jail and wrote his book. Mm-hmm. We we, uh, we the ones that opened that up. And so I did. And the guy, that was a, a, a place where uh, a transit place where he just went through to get discharged. And I said, I'd like to see the medical doctor. And, and somebody said, well, hell, you got your own doctor. I said, no, I can't use our own doctor on this. And and I said, well, we'll let you see him, but we can't help you. And I went to see this guy, and I told him what was going on. He said, are you sure that's going on? I said, yes, I'm sure it's going on. And he said, well, there's two things, too, and I'll tell you the other one. And I don't know if what I said or what somebody or caught up with it, but about two weeks later, these guys got arrested and went to prison. Oh wow! But then there was another thing. There was a lot of guys going to sick call, and for too many guys going to sick call, that reflects back on the company commander. Something's going wrong.
4: Mm.
2: You shouldn't have that many guys going to sick call, and so this company commander, Captain Graham. <coughs> He had to stand up in front of him and the first sergeant make you drink a half a pint of cod liver oil.
0: Mmm, yum.
2: And that's when I told that doctor about that doctor about that. He said, Isn't it true now that um only a medical doctor can order you to drink to take medicine? He said, yes. He said, you sure that's going on? I said, sure as hell is. Oh. He said, you go over in that, in your barracks, and don't you talk to anybody, and you stay there until we tell you you can come out. And pretty soon, a jeep came up, two guys went out, came back for Captain can with Captain McCann with handcuffs on.
0: Whoa. And
2: then found out something else. <laughs> he'd been bragging about how many women he'd been with. And he said he had two, 200 pairs of panties. So some of the officers said to me, we want you to go over and check on that. We'll keep him away. And I did, because I knew they'd protect me if I got caught. <laughs> so I did go over and check him. He's got 200 of them, and he said they're not, none of them have been worn either. How'd you know it? I smelled them. <laughs> He'd been stealing those off of somebody's clothesline. <laughs> well, and he went to prison. <laughs> thank you for your time. You're welcome. Maybe it didn't go like you thought it would. Well, now no, this fine. was
0: fantastic.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Jim Wee Martin. And now, Ms. Karen Waldrop and Normandy.
4: Jumped on D-Day, and we wrote the song together. It's called Normandy. He said he was a hundred and first, first to fight on the sixth of June to save the world that night, 1944. Never fall before, just teenage boys. For you, Jim Martin. Love you.